Welcome back to Halftone, a podcast presented by the Fabric Workshop and Museum and Pig Iron Theatre Company. For those of you who are just tuning in, we recommend starting with the first episode for additional context. For our fourth and final episode of the season, we are pulling back the curtain and diving into the inspirations and conversations that brought Halftone to life. In this episode, we, the team behind the podcast, Katie Perry, Aaron Sweeney, and Alec Unkovic, We'll share how the vision of this pilot season was dreamed up, and we'll speak with Quinn Baradell, co-director of Pig Iron Theatre Company, and our creative partner for this endeavor, about his perspective that he brought to the project and his approach as a performer. But first, Katie, how did we dream up this idea? The idea for Halftone came about in the early days of the pandemic. In 2019, when artists Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly visited FWM, during their first conversations with the staff, they expressed their interest in the Dust Bowl era of the 1930s. They were thinking about isolation, scarcity, and the anxiety that comes from deep uncertainty. It seemed to them that there might be parallels between that time and the present. I started learning more about the Dust Bowl era, and the impact of radio dramas broadcast during this time when people were unable to leave their homes. They provided a much-needed respite and escape from the stress of everyday life. In the early days of the pandemic, we were similarly isolated in our homes and dealing with the anxiety that comes from deep uncertainty. It seemed right to create a podcast, our modern-day version of the radio drama, as a way of connecting to the public when they couldn't come to the museum. I also learned about shelter belts, a swath of trees that were planted around fields after the Dust Bowl to prevent future dust storms. I kept thinking about how much we needed our own shelter belt, something to protect us from future harm and offer a feeling of hope. Blood Moon is Mary and Pat's resulting exhibition from their residency, and you can see connections from those early conversations in how one of the most famous stories from the Dust Bowl era John Steinbeck's 1937 novella of Mice and Men directly influenced one of the two main films that Mary and Pat created. In that vein, Halftone has similar connections to those early ideas from the residency while involved into something bigger. Erin, can you expand on how this evolved into what Halftone is now? So, riffing off the idea of the radio drama, I wondered how this idea might translate to a podcast that could find a connection with Mary and Pat's exhibition, but could also take on a life of its own as an experimental medium. Beyond interviews with artists, how could it embody the experimental nature of the workshop? And how could we brand that concept? So one idea that came up, and I believe, Katie, you originally suggested this, for the podcast title was Halftone. This term links back to printmaking, so in a halftone image, the continuous tones of a picture being printed are broken down into a series of equally spaced dots of varying size. This allows for the illusion of, of all of the gray tones in the image to be displayed, but they're all constructed of a series of dots. This felt perfect for the concept of the podcast, as we wanted to focus on exploring the creative process and all the mysterious pieces, or dots if you will, that bring a project together. I also loved where it led us in terms of the music for the podcast. 
which was created by a Brooklyn-based composer and musician named Shar McCutcheon. Brainstorming ideas with Shar, we were both very excited about this idea of the dots and how that might translate to audio. Thinking about Morse code to old-school news bulletins on the radio to literal halftones in music and even bird calls. Again, it was about creating music that found inspiration in Blood Moon, but could also work with a wide variety of content. And Alec, maybe you can introduce how we arrived at the idea for the first season. So at the Fabric Workshop, one of our regular practices as staff is our roundtable meetings among departments. During these weekly convenings, we collaboratively report and share information on how artist projects are evolving over the course of the years that we work with them. During one of these roundtables, Zach Ingram, a member of our studio team, mentioned that Mary had found a letter by John Steinbeck during her research about the Dust Bowl. Steinbeck had written it to the actress Claire Luce, who was cast in the role of Curly's wife in the 1939 Tower Theater production of Of Mice and Men. Luce initially struggled with the part because she didn't feel she knew enough about the character to inhabit her, so Steinbeck wrote to her to provide guidance. Here to read Steinbeck's response is Nikki Schaefer, a former Fabric Workshop staff member. To Claire Luce, Los Gatos, 1938. Dear Miss Luce, Annie Laurie says you were worried about your playing of the part of Curly's wife, although from the reviews... It appears that you are playing it marvelously. I am deeply grateful to you and to the others in the cast for your feeling about the play. You have surely made it much more than it was by such a feeling. About the girl, I don't know, of course, what you think about her, but perhaps if I should tell you a little about her, as I know her, it might clear your feelings about her. She grew up in an atmosphere of fighting and suspicion, Quite early, she learned that she must never trust anyone, but she was never able to carry out what she learned. A natural trustfulness broke through constantly, and every time it did, it got her. Her moral training was most rigid. She was told over and over that she must remain a virgin because that was the only way she could get a husband. This was harped on so often that it became a fixation. It would have been impossible to seduce her. She had only that one thing to sell, and she knew it. Now, she was trained by threat, not only at home, but by other kids. And any show of fear or weakness brought an instant persecution. She learned to be hard to cover her fright. And automatically, she became hardest when she was most frightened. She is a nice, kind girl, not a floozy. No man has ever considered her as anything except a girl to try to make. She has never talked to a man, except in the sexual fencing conversation. She is not highly sexed particularly, but knows instinctively that if she is to be noticed at all, it will be because someone finds her sexually desirable. As to her actual sexual life, she has had none except with Curly, and there has probably been no consummation there, since Curly would not consider her gratification and would probably be suspicious if she had any. Consequently, she's a little starved. She knows utterly nothing about sex, except the mass information girls tell one another. If anyone, a man or woman, ever gave her a break, treated her like a person, 
she would be a slave to that person. Her craving for contact is immense, but she, with her background, is incapable of conceiving any contact without some sexual context. With all this, if you knew her, if you could ever break down a thousand little defenses she has built up, you would find a nice person, an honest person, and you would end up by loving her. But such a thing could never happen. I hope you won't think I'm preaching. I've known this girl, and I'm just trying to tell you what she is like. She is afraid of everyone in the world. You've known girls like that, haven't you? You can see them in Central Park on a hot night. They travel in groups for protection. They pretend to be wise and hard and voluptuous. I have a feeling that you know all this, and that you are doing all this. Please forgive me if I seem to intrude on your job. I don't intend to, and I'm only writing this because Annie Laurie said you wondered about the girl. It's a devil of a hard part. I am very happy that you have it. Sincerely, John Steinbeck. When Zach brought up the letter in the meeting, he didn't have the letter in front of him, but we looked it up and read it, and it just it struck me as a very kind letter and a very generous letter and also really surprising um, just because in the framework of the story, you know so little about Curly's wife. And that was something that Mary really noticed and picked up on is that, you know, the one female character in the story has no name. And she really like tapped into that question of who is this character and what are their dreams and um, what are their motivations and renamed the character Betty and made her an artist and made her like the center of the story. Um, but it just brought up a lot of interesting thoughts about how um, information feels like a generous thing. Like when someone gives you information about a person or about a character, about an idea, it feels like a gift but also in the creative process, having freedom also feels like a gift. So it just felt like an interesting thing to consider. I mean, I know that at one point we were even considering naming the podcast Betty's, mm -hmm. um, and we ended up changing it to Halftone because I think that felt more true to what it could be, you know, thinking beyond Mary and Pat's project. Um, but yeah, I think this this notion about how to how to bring lesser known characters to light and kind of linking that to the creative process was a big part of it. And I know that something that interested us was thinking about non-visual storytelling as well, because I think visuals are our forte at the fabric workshop, right? <laughs> and so we also knew that we wanted to push ourselves as staff. Often we let the artists lead us, and in some ways Mary and Pat certainly did. But I think we also wanted as staff to really try something that was beyond what our general scope is as an institution. And so I know that that was us really thinking about what could we do as an experimental, non-visual storytelling medium, and who might we want to work with in order to help figure this out, especially as... This was our first go-around of sorts. So as Katie, Aaron, and I have been having a conversation in the studio, we're now joined by Quinn Bardell, co-director of Pig Iron. Thank you for being here, Quinn. Great to be here. 
And so um, you have been on this journey with us for exploring what halftone might be. And when we approached you, it was pretty open-ended with a prompt, but tell us a bit about what maybe you thought. I mean, I love these kind of um, approaches where it's open-ended and something we've never done before. I think for Pig Iron from the beginning, always tries to do something brand new and um, and challenging, maybe even impossible. Uh, The pandemic told us that we needed to somehow become experts in all the things that are, you know, digital media and, um, you know, the theme just seemed really exciting. The, the things that are hidden on the edges, the things that are, um, not given a name. So I think I was hooked by you all and, um, the coolness of the fabric workshop and museum and how I've admired like just the kind of wild thinking and the non traditional ways in which you bring artists in who seem to have, seem to be illogical choices and then completely perfect choices um, and really stretching yourself. So it seemed like, as you said, natural fit and the theme hooked me. And um, I also run the Pig Iron School, which is a graduate program. And so I'm also always looking for cool opportunities that I can extend to those alums who are kind of out there making things, who do things that, you know, even the company doesn't do that are actually taking us in new directions. Like the students are sort of the real experimenters who suddenly bring up some idea that feels like, oh yeah, this is exactly what the, what the company should be pursuing. So it had a lot of wins. And I know in that process, you know, we kind of opened it up and decided we were going to work together. But then we we're like, okay, now <laughs> let's see, you know, who who would be right for this and just really placed that trust in you to to do what felt good in terms of connecting with artists. How did you how did that process feel? Or was it a pretty like organic fit? I mean, it's really fun and really hard. You know, when I have a lot of students that I am very fond of who do really cool work as as alums. Tony in particular was sort of the first one that popped into my mind because we had just um, pivoted to online work and he had done this project actually before the pandemic even started. We were very interested in um, theater for audiences that were blind. And there's a tradition out there in the world, people who are really, that that is their mission and that's their company and they're really investigating how to have a vivid theatrical experience in the dark um, for sighted and non-sighted audiences. And, um, you know, he really wanted to look at that, but that began to turn into a radio play. Um, and he added some really fun details, which is, you know, if you were up for it, listening to it, why don't you go into your bathroom, turn off the lights, steam it up, um, (laughs) have some like scented candles and then have the experience. So it was almost like creating a a full sensorial experience, except no, Mm -hmm. nothing visual. And he wrote 12 songs and he mixed his voice 14 times and made this very beautiful, complex, interesting story um, set in a gay bathhouse. And uh, that just always struck me because it was not something that I proposed. There was nothing about that that I proposed. It was really bringing out of Tony's desire. And so when this idea came up, I thought, oh, this is like something he's already stirred in. I already feel confident that he Mm -hmm. can kind of take this and you know as an african-american artist i also felt like this is exactly the person that i want to be supporting and bringing into the light i know he has something to say about um, stories that are hidden in the margins and stories about characters that don't yet have their full voice um 
Jeannie was an artist who, um, as a final project, had made this choral piece, and she's somebody who has like a kind of a excellence as a musician and composer. Um, and that piece also really struck me. It was kind of a feminist anthem um, with eight voices. And I thought, oh, this is also the artist that really would kind of dig into this. And I'd seen that she was working in a visual form more recently, but also continuing to kind of songwrite. Uh, and then Francesca had been working at Pig Iron and she was somebody who also really has a strong kind of vivid voice. I thought as a counterpoint to something that would be maybe more narrative, um, maybe more um, uh, have like a kind of comic wink um, to it. So <laughs> it felt like, okay, this is, the, this is the trio. I'll reach out, see if they're available, see if they're interested. And sure enough, they were all really excited and up for it. And you all kind of included them into your... Um, in, into kind of the big questions of the project in such a way that they felt like they were not just, you know, making something to, for me, they were making something for many, many more people than just in, insider pig iron world. I feel like it worked out like a dream, like a dream collaboration because when collaborations work really well, I feel like it's because you had a vague idea of what you hoped would come back. But then when you see what the person has created, it's like, it's nothing you could have imagined. It's like beyond anything you would have even known how to imagine yourself, but it's perfect. It's like just right. And that's like magic. I don't know. It feels really like the magic of a collaboration. I think it came up from the original prompt, which was that you actually didn't prescribe it. And, you know, when you have a really open-ended um, prompt, it can go in many different directions, so it's hard to know what you're going to get back. And, it, and there's times where that, that kind of open playing field is so vast that an artist can be adrift. And so I feel like it had just enough markers to it and that it was coming out of, you know, Curly's wife, just that anecdote about um, kind of the unnamed character that maybe he had some regret about not giving a little bit fuller um, characterization to. And uh, yeah, that was a very chewy artistic prompt to me. And I think that the, um, the, these other artists really felt the same way. And therefore, it did go in a bunch of unexpected directions. Yeah, and each piece was so distinct, you know, and kind of took you, I think, going through the, the three episodes, took you on a journey in a very different way that um, it was, I think, also thinking about the sequencing of the episodes and um, kicking off with Francesca's piece and then, it kind of, you know, went from what had also had like a historical reference point of Lolita and then going into, you know, Jeannie's piece with the sort of imagined world of Francesca Woodman and and then, you know, starting to be able to, I felt like to be able to get lost in that with her as she was, you know, conjuring that and, and then going into Tony's piece, which really felt like, you know, this, in a way, I mean, very different than the piece you described that he worked on, but also created this world that you could, you know, it did feel like a, a sound bath of sorts, you know, and, and um, I just really enjoyed like each of them separately, but then thinking about, you know, together as we were talking about this pilot season, you know, like how do we, how do we kind of lead listeners through the experience each for each episode, but then also the kind of arc um, and so it's really cool, too, to be able to talk about it because we, we all came to it in a spirit of collaboration and openness. And it's like, okay, what, what did happen and how did that feel? I guess it also made us 
think about too, like, um, as a, I understand as an artist how to approach this question, but I don't understand as a performer how, like, how do you inhabit a character that you really have very little information about? Like, how do you know when you've captured something true about that character's way of talking or moving or gesture when you are drawing from your imagination or from a place of unknown? How do you... How do you do that, Quinn? <laughs> <laughs> That's the study of acting, really. But uh, it's hard. And yet a character that is where you're given very little information, you have a lot of space to fill in the gaps. And so you're taking clues from essentially what else, what other information there is. What's the world that this novel takes place in? And how might a person um, situate themselves? And then there might be research, you know, if, if this, if the, Novel takes place in a particular era, and this um, there's a there's this information about their work, their class, their family. They're like you you begin to piece it together. It's a great puzzle, and that actually is the real joy, dramaturgical research of a of any kind of project, taking something that exists in one form and then bringing it into another. It's a it's a ongoing process to figure out what feels authentic. When does the gesture feel like it? Um, it gives more information and feels like it's not just thrown away. And I think this theater is about adding a lot of things in and then taking a lot of things away until you have just enough. And a gesture should always feel like it has a paragraph of information to it um, so that it has kind of resonant meaning. And I think when you f begin to find those, the the metaphoric movements or gestures or grimaces or whatever, um, then it, it, uh, it, it feels like a part of the writing, I guess. Um, and maybe it's just the actors, like we're studying human nature, and so we uh, have to rely sometimes on our instinct about when something feels kind of true inside of us and when it doesn't, and we also rely on outsiders to let us know when it really feels phony and um, not a part of the world, out, outside of the world, and when that's jarring and kind of takes the audience like out of the imagination space into something that is, um, I don't know, uh, falling like a thud, I guess. But uh, that's why we rehearse a ton. <laughs> <laughs> is to kind of continue to make those sorts of discoveries. But I do think, so, you know, a, a character that's really incredibly detailed and written and constructed, that's another set of information where it's all in the page, and your job really is to just kind of honor that and bring that back to life in three dimensions. Whereas somebody who's just kind of hinted at, uh, you get to create lots of backstory, and you get to make lots of invention, so you're... I guess a little, there's a, there can be a little bit more freedom, a little less reverence, because um, the author didn't care to uh, say enough, so maybe that gives some artistic license to add in some details and almost be a co-collaborator with Steinbeck. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like sort of, like Steinbeck might have made that choice to to leave so much out about Curly's wife because that was the framework of the story and it made sense for um that just like um the story being mostly from the, the standpoint of um george and lenny but it also feels like kind of like a calling to all of us in a way like 
for us to like advocate for or like demand her humanity kind of like to bring it to life like bring it into being when it wasn't necessarily like offered through the story um so it's, I don't know it's just interesting that 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 it could be an opportunity I guess rather than an, uh, something omitted but something that's given as an opportunity to the reader to create something of their own I guess I feel like that's been a theme in for artists sometimes is to take something that was sort of missing in one and then write the whole next chapter like um uh i don't know just the way the wizard of oz has like spun off a whole bunch of different you know we want to know toto's story what if it's just about <laughs> toto and the witch and all of these things so it, it it seems like there's it's almost an open source to grab something and then sift everything else away and really put a focus on that which i think is tremendously exciting i was thinking about this painting that i love that's called the fall of icarus i guess and when you look at the painting, it's so tiny. It's just off in the corner, Icarus kind of crashing into the sea. But everything else about the painting is just ordinary life. Somebody's tilling the soil and there's a ship that's kind of doing some trade. And um, I don't know, it presents this idea that, sure, there are these epic things, but there's also a, a, a story completely off. And it's kind of putting that into the foreground and putting this kind of mythic thing often as just a little side note. Um, and so I, I don't know, I'm, I always... Um, go back to that painting because it uh, feels like it does a version of this and says, hey, ordinary life, also interesting. The farmer who could care less about, you know, this like flyer um, just trying to make a buck. I mean, that also makes me think of, you know, epic life events, thinking about death or or birth or and these things that happen and they're happening to you and you feel so transformed, but then like that happens and you step out into the world and then it's just like, okay, people are just grabbing their coffee and, you know, and um, doing, doing what they do. And so I think, um, I don't know, I, I, linking it back even to thinking about Mary and Pat's project and how they kind of bridged that idea of, you know, taking, taking that story of Curly's wife and thinking about it in terms of like the visual arts perspective, the performing arts perspective, but then thinking about something like the pumpkin heads, you know, which becomes this recurring theme in the exhibition that is also like a, a very, I don't know, like a almost campy yeah. element of, of everyday kind of culture and thinking around, you know, the, the fall season and um, how they kind of mashed all of that together in a really compelling way. I think it was also a really interesting bridge um, between between all of those. And so in what ways did this sort of experimentation maybe feel like a natural extension of what you've done with pig iron? And in what ways was it maybe a little different than what you've challenged yourself with before? We actually are, have been talking for a little while at, you know, the 25 year mark. Pig irons always try to do the next most challenging, difficult thing and not stay not not repeat ourselves and um there has been such an interest in new forms new ways of reaching audiences new spaces and i would say that that terrain is not at all well trodden by us um although uh 
we've performed in dozens and dozens of different kinds of spaces and we've asked audiences to do lots of different kinds of things. And so in a way, each project, the, the material sort of posits how we, how we reach an audience. But when we were all in a virtual space, suddenly we wondered if um, we could learn some things about exactly how to communicate. And, and I do think back to this moment with Tony where it was like, oh, this was really not just something that felt like the only option because of how we did it. it really, um, I would want to see that no matter whether I could gather in public or not. It was such a, or see or experience this. Um, and so we kind of, as a company, have been thinking about a new wing, um, which for now we're calling the Digital Film Interactive Wing. And we're working with a filmmaker right now who is going to make some kind of installation interactive um, piece that we're calling the Pregnant Speakeasy. And it is um, kind of wandering through the many different emotional states and feelings and experiences of um, the pregnant body. And uh, her filmmaking has been inspired by this devising community gathering collective um, creation model, even in a different medium. And so that's taken us a little bit into her world and her into our world. Uh, we've made a game for like a pilot game, um, an app, I guess, for the um, Philosophical Society about Benjamin Franklin that was taking place over the summer in um, the kind of like fifth and arch, fifth and um, chestnut area. Uh, so the little experiments like that. So in a way, this felt like it was yet another thing for us to incubate and try at this moment, which um, could lead to us going down this road with you too. What does it mean to make a podcast and express kind of things that can only be done in this medium? Um, but again, I think we're we're always feeling like we're novices. We don't really know what we're doing. We're just trying things out and listening to how other people have attacked it and then maybe finding our own path through it. So in a way, it was a perfectly timed opportunity. I mean, at the Fabric Workshop, we similarly often feel like we are novices because <laughs> we keep on asking to try new things that we don't know, right? So, and I feel like maybe that's how Pig Iron explores also as a company, but also with collaborators as well. Yeah, that's one of the things which I glean and felt like why wow, it was such a nice fit, even though... Technically, we're kind of in different um, disciplines. We get adjudicated differently at grant panels and that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, I had that sense that like every every artist that you bring in asks different things of you, and you actually like that. You like not being like, well, last time we did it this way, so we only have eighteen feet of storage. So you have to do it this way. It's like, oh no, everything is open until we begin to figure out like how to do the thing that's sort of emerging out of you and a partnership and a collaboration like that. So. That felt right. And also I think what you were saying about the development of a character, it was making me think about that process, you know, for artists and residents that are coming in as they're given this sort of wide berth, you know, to explore a new medium or project, whatever the case may be. And so I think there's also, you know, in that, there's sort of that, usually that culminating event of like this exhibition that happens. So I guess you know, thinking about that as kind of the parallel to that performance that you're working towards and that engagement with the audience, but in a very different way. In Mary and Pat's case, I think it was also interesting because it had, you know, this performative element to it, which is definitely not always the case. But, um, 
you know, I think the more that we talked about this project and worked together, I realized how there are a lot, really a lot of parallels just in that, in that creative process, even though they manifest in very different ways. Uh, so that has been really cool. Did they make like 400 decisions in the last four days before the exhibition opened? Absolutely. Yes, but that's common for any artist in residence okay. at that point. I will, and you don't have to pinpoint that just to Mary and Pat, but I do agree. I think the, the closer that you get, you go very expansive uh, in the early days and you stay pretty expansive for a long time. And then it's really in the last six months of a residency where it becomes a narrowing and refining process at that point. Um, and so, but being a physical site and being a museum, it really does mean that the installation, which can be, you know, three weeks before the show opens is when that moment starts. There are so many choices that have to be made because no matter how much you dream up um, a project or, or rehearse in your case, as soon as you actually get onto the stage or you get into the galleries, then, um, final choices have to be made no matter what at that point. Ones in which you couldn't have envisioned no matter how much time you spend in the studio. Sounds familiar. Even with this podcast, I mean, we were joking about this a little bit earlier. You know, when we came in for our first recording session, we were sort of like, okay, we know what this is turning into. Like we know that they're, you know, the the general structure of these episodes, but we were just at a certain point we had talked about like how we were going to present things and then we just had to do it. And, and so I think there's like something that's always a little bit daunting, but exciting about that moment of just like committing, you know, and, and then, and then leaning into it. And I think too, like you can't really collaborate if you know everything already. Like if you already know all the answers and you know how to do something perfectly. And so being in this place of like never, <laughs> never doing a podcast before, not knowing how to do it, it allowed for um, the unexpected and surprising and exciting things that happened along the way. I think this collaboration and um, also you really trusting us as well allowed us to think, um, as we were saying, in a non-visual medium. And I think typically our staff... um, when we think about how we might uh, interpret or extend a project in a creative way, often turn to still the visual format, be it um, if we print screens that interpret it, so so tours and groups can screen print their own interpretations, be it uh, workshops, be it um, some sort of response. But I think that this experience was exciting because it allowed us to really think about the conceptual um, nugget Um, or one of them in a project and to really ask ourselves to not default to um, a visual way of interpreting it. So that was really lovely to explore that in a way that felt like it, um, it extended what was possible at the workshop. I think I echo that too. Our staff really figures that in, in one of the big kind of excitements, but also stresses, we work in three dimensions. We work in a visual format. I think the original definition of theater from the Greek is place of seeing. So it is, you know, all about images and actions and three-dimensionality. And this this turn, I guess, of, you know, what happens when that's limited? What happens when you have to work on a screen? What happens when an entrance and an exit on in a normal theatrical space suddenly is totally different? Because now in Zoom, you can enter from above, below, to the side, but you don't have the same... <laughs> 
there's a limitation, but there's some new ways of exploring that. Um, and then with this radio play, it almost seems so obvious because I actually did radio plays when I was a kid. It was something that um, was just kind of offered and me and my friends just got really into it, making sound effects and making characters and crazy voices and all this. But that was so, so long ago. And then to come back to it and realize uh, how wonderful it is to be totally immersed and to have your own kind of film playing in your head when you're listening to something. And obviously a great radio piece or a great story that's just told in words is one where you can see everything, you can somehow have a smell, you can touch all of everyone's senses, but it's just um, offered in a, in a slightly different way. Uh, so like I said, like sometimes when you take something away, you give yourself the gift of having to figure out what else replaces it. Exactly. Well, Quinn, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this. And thank you for collaborating with us on this. You bet. You've been listening to Halftone, a podcast from the Fabric Workshop and Museum, presented in partnership with Pig Iron Theater Company. Halftone is presented in connection with Blood Moon, an exhibition by artists Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly at the Fabric Workshop and Museum, which is supported by the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. Halftone is produced by Katy Perry, Aaron Sweeney, and Alec Unkovic, engineered by Joel Metzler at Milk Boy the Studio. Our music was contributed by Shar McCutcheon. Special thanks to Nikki Schaefer and our collaborators at Pig Iron Theater Company, including Quinn Baradell, Francesca Montanilli-Lyons, Jeannie Lyons, and Tony Moten. Find more information at fabricworkshopandmuseum.org slash halftone. While this is the end of our pilot season, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss season two of Halftone, coming your way in March 2022. Oh.